I think we just we just gotten down to the pasuk the Rabban pasuk the Rabban quotes pasuk says Mishvatim ve'etnolochas tuches da'ever v'atera v'amitzah shkosafi lo'eraisam and we went over the different shatim in the pasuk. I tell the Rabban also used this pasuk both in the beginning of the Pirush Mishnayis and Brachas and also in the beginning of the uh, I mean in the Akdom in the Akdom Mishnah. The Rabban says v'atera First to what? The Teresh Bichsav and the Mitzvah, the Teresh, the Teresh the Teresh Shabal Peh. So according to the Ram, actually, there is no separate mention in the Pesach really of those parts which are not halacha, so to speak. I mean, those parts which are specifically uh, more or less narrative in the Sipramais, especially the parts in Bereshis which preceded the um, uh, actual Aschol of, uh, of Mitzvahs of, of Matan Teresh, such. But uh, the Ramban list considers this to be Vahateva. Vahateva, he says, refers to the Sipurim, Tchilas Breshis. And Vahamitzvah, uh, apparently, according to him, refers to all the parts which are halacha, which everything which follows later on after Vahateva. Yes. Uh, according to Ramban, that he Well, that's not I know what you mean by without even, you see. It depends. If one should simply read without understanding at all, or with understanding, if without understanding at all, so then in Teresh Shabbat, then there might be the Teresh Shabbat and Teresh Shabbat Peh. Then Teresh Shabbat might constitute Mikro, but in Teresh Shabbat Peh, since he says that Mikro but Limut, so it would be nothing. But if someone understands, who doesn't understand profoundly, so why should he become Mikro and Teresh Shabbat There's only one area with regard to which one dis- the distinction is possibly made between a fuller Limut, with you call Higoyen, and another one. This is with regard to Yisro, Tamatayr, and Tishaba. Uh, there, possibly, there are Yisurah is like that, not in the Kiyum of Tamatel, in the Yisurum of Tamatel, Moshe on Tishabah, there's a Shtikul Kulis, and with regard to this, or for instance, with regard to Balkari, Balkari is also the Vretera, so also, so Shemi who the Mishnah is the Gemara Mbach, Shemi who the Gilead, the things that more or less just flow smoothly, doesn't mean that's Mimayim, so there perhaps it's Muta. But this is all because the Yisurim, the Yisurim are formulated more in terms of Iyum and be Mimic and so on. As far as the Kiyum Amitzvah is concerned, certainly there's a Kiyum even if one learns uh, without understanding fully, of course. <laughs> the more fully one understands, the better it is. But certainly the Kiyum Amitzvah, in any event, what's the, what's the question? <coughs> why, why shouldn't there be? The Kiyum of Tamatera, the Yisurim, you have these uh, these possible differences. But in the Kiyum, certainly not. Yes. Well, not necessarily. It means without the whole shaka vitalia and, uh, and so on. I mean, the Mishnah is simply more or less uh, terse to these statements. Uh, the Gemara has already a whole discussion back and forth as to uh, what the basis is and the reasons and the makir and so on. Uh, well, there could be a certain measure of Iyun and Mishnah too. I mean, generally speaking, I would agree with you that the Gemara is more, maybe more of Iyun. That's why the Gemara, that's why the Gemara says more Basra. One is not allowed to Pasca on the basis of the Mishnah. Because uh, it's might one might not know uh, you know what the basis is. 
No, but so there's no mitzvah Talmud Torah learning Mishnah. Uh, certainly is. Oh, the Chazal, you, you're supporting. The, oh yes, of course. <laughs> All right, okay. So, this actually involves two elements. Uh, why? First of all, in terms of giving us uh, an insight to the extent that we can get it, the Drachim of the simply seeing the Drachim of the And this is one, one of the ways. Actually, Rashi, at the very beginning, Rashi Monash alludes to this in the sense I'm Rabbi Yitzchak, and why? Uh, why the Torah doesn't begin really with with Achish Zalachem? Why it starts in the very beginning? Because in order that we should understand some of the background, the perspective within which the Matan Torah has to be placed, and secondly, not only what we see as far as the Drachim and the Anhog of the Ashgache, but also what we see as far as the Drachim of the Aves, the Anhog of the Aves. So this itself also is a Meira B'Derech Amuna. This is true not only with regard to the Aves. This is something which should generally be kept in mind. Uh, the importance of Present in this sense, the importance of observing Gedolim uh, and see their hanhaga and, uh, and their drachim as far as taking this as a pattern of our own lives. Of course, ideally, this is something which should be done uh, directly as far as possible. This is what the pasuk says: "Vayu enecha reis esmerecha." You know, the Gemara Nevim, when the Gemara says that Rav uh, placed such emphasis upon this, and he says, "Aida chakimne mechavroi," that the what he felt to be the Edge, so to speak, that he had over his kaverim was the chazit rabmeir me'achorei that he had seen rabmeir's rabmeir's way. Of course, the rabbi once said, doesn't mean that he saw rabmeir was the nape of, of rabmeir's neck. Uh, presumably, he saw him from the front too many times. He learned by him. Mustami was always just in back of him to see what he looked like. Mustami must have he must have looked uh, faced him directly. But the gemara means apparently that he saw a great deal of rabmeir indirectly. It's not so much that he saw rabmeir's specific. Uh, taught directly by Rabbi Meir always do this, do this but he saw Me'achere I saw the concept I saw Rabbi Meir in moments when he was not consciously trying to teach I mean I saw him as we as we would say in English in a, stage of un, in a state of undress in other words I saw Rabbi Meir at moments when he was not in any way trying somehow to impress me or to teach me something but I just saw his natural behavior this itself taught me taught me a great deal yeah. doesn't the Gemara go on and say that if I would have seen Rabbi Meir from the front then I would have been much greater than that yes correct no, the, what it means is the Gemara in the same sense as they use in the Pasuk. So last time, the Pasuk speaks that so what was he told? So what does it mean? There certainly doesn't mean Chashom in a physical sense. What do you mean? There's no Panim in the Dachariim. So what is So the Ramas is ready to say It's also the first part you say that tale. The Ramas says it means that he couldn't get a direct intuitive perception, insight into the Rabbeinu Shlim, which was Meshach Rabbeinu asked for, that he wanted to know the Rabbeinu Shlim, where you know another person. And he was told, no, you'll only be able to know the Rabbeinu Shlim by his effect, by his midas. Not directly, but simply by looking at the results, you'll be able somehow to infer the nature of the cause. And what I mean similarly with the God to Ra, when he says that, the, I saw that Meir, I saw him in terms of his anhogis, how he behaved himself and so on. Had I been able to gain this direct, intuitive perception, direct insight into him, then he would have been, Ra felt he would have been Leinach greater. This is why Chazal always, you see so much emphasis placed on seeing the Anhogis of Gdele, and the Gemara says, that's Gdekach, that someone was, he, he followed his rabbis of the Beis HaKis, and the Gemara says in, in Brachas, he wanted to see how, what, uh, what his Anhogis was, I and mean, even things which concern so much personal sneer, so that, so this is, of course, well, the best way that one can possibly do this, in terms of, in the Pechid of Hayyeh, in Echreis, 
But the way this is not possible, is very often it isn't. So, a, having some record of that hug of Del Yisrael is, serves as an alternative. And here you have it, I mean, in a sense, in Chumash, the to the Yavais, but uh, actually it's something which one should try to get, something to Peshmur, something directly by reading, uh, with Rat Abdelim in general. And this is particularly many, many times when certain events are. I want to say to certain personal decisions, decisions which have an uncertain nature, where certain doubts come in as to what course one should follow, this is often a very, a very good test to think, not so much, I mean, you know, not, I mean, not, not, I mean, uh, we've got the Shailas, which are open and shut, so to speak, Halach and Sikh but uh, where there are certain problems which are more or less gray areas, and where the temptation, of course, is much greater, that uh, there one very often is served best by trying to think what would such a person have done, or what would his Rebbe have done, what would his father have done, or what would such a, another Mgadl have done. And uh, this in itself often serves as the best check, because otherwise, in many ways, in certain situations, one can rationalize such a talent, such a talent. But if one begins to project to think what would have happened, or what would such a person have done, then you realize instinctively, without knowing why, that, that a particular action. Maybe wrong. This is Chazal say also with regard to the mice of Yasef and and Petifa. And if, if Yasef had sat down, maybe the Cheshvan Yasef, Allah had mice, maybe he would have found the answer for the mice. But uh, uh, mice of Petifa. But Chazal, uh, but maybe he wouldn't have found it. Also. But uh, but Chazal, Chazal said this was not. The Gemara said this was not what deterred him. What deterred him was the idea of the Muzik de Shalom. I mean, the sense that. What was, what was his father? His father. And there are many such situations. That's why it's important. And this question of Meira Anoshim Bedarach being Yer Haimuni. All right. So what does the what does Rambam say? Right. All right. Okay. Say we do the Brit Seminahal. So this is what he wrote initially, right? So he wrote a Torah of Mitzvot. He wrote Torah with Sipurim Mitzchilas Breishi. So then Brit Seminahal. What, what about the rest? No. Yeah, we didn't get too far. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you write initially? So Ramban says, mitzvah. Apparently he writes then, right then and there already, he got Torah, Mitzvah, and seven, right? So, Teva was his poem until Breshis. So, what was the mitzvah? He already got certain mitzvahs right away that he wrote. And then Mishpatim. So, which mitzvahs did he write? Until where, does Ramban say? Which mitzvahs already were given then that he wrote? He said, until Gemar Sipra Mishkin. Exactly how far this would be in the Teva. He had some discussion in Shavel's passage what Ramban means. All right, he takes it that it means until the end of, uh, uh, the end of the the middle of Kisisa. All right, we see, but until the end of the, that which involved the, uh, the Sipra Mishkin. So, this is already the mitzvah which he got right then and there. What about the rest? When did you write the rest of the Torah? Gemara Torah? No? Gemara Torah Ketav Tzav Shnat Ha'avim Kashir Amar Lekoach 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 Et Sefer Torah Hashem The Samsam 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 Did you look up the passage? Trust Ahmed Samsam was when he sat around with Hashem Elohim Yeah Alright, so this is the So the end of the Torah was written only at the end of the period that they were in the in the Midbar And prior to that, apparently it was only only parts had been written, correct? And, this is, and so in one part, this Ramban says, they wrote some Tzchilas HaTel until Sefi Pramishkin. This he wrote right early at that, that stage. 
Alright, the second even though Eimer, the view that I've expressed in Eimer, which view? That what? Yeah, that he wrote some then, the rest later. This is according to the Mandama who says. When is U? You know when is U come? When? Uh, what? Connecting? Is nothing with connecting? When do you use the U at the beginning? Two conditions, then when? Either it's a Shavon, or it's beginning, or it's here, it's a Mumaf. Yeah, it's a Mumaf. I've a Lambda, but I don't know the person. The Kisvu Lachem is a Shira, as I use the Lambda. Yes, Kisvu. Lokayach, Lokayach. What does Lokayach mean? Lokayach and Lokayach, what's the difference? You know? Rashi Chumash touched the Pradesh. No, that's Rashi Chumash. What is Lokayach and Lokayach? What's the difference? What is this Chayr and Zachayr? Say it Zachayr to Shabbat Lakash. You say it every week, no? So wasn't it that in Zachayr? Rashi touched the what? Strong action, nothing strong action. This is PL, Zachar is PL, I find it might. What? You know, this is Chayr and Zachar. What is the passive? What is the passive in you? Don't you study Hebrew in high school? You don't know what the binyanim are? What's the difference? Which are active and passive? You don't know the difference in active? What is this Chayon Zacher? Yes, why does this Chayon Zacher? What? Which is the Tzivu in Amir? The Chayon is a Tzivu, you know? What is Zacher? The market. Ah, fine. So, so what's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, Rashi Chumash says it. It's Rashi many questions. So what's the difference between Zacher then? But yeah, like I have a halacha too, as a matter of fact. What? Yes, Zacher means a specific commandment. Right? Zacher means that that one that to remember to remember Shabbos, not to remember, but to remember that it should be remembered constantly. Rashi in the Right there? I believe that's how Sibos, I think, says it. There's never a place in Kumish or Ashish Tashish. Yeah, doesn't touch him. Says it. Zachel is a trash of the shine pile. Who can be a child? The shots What's why didn't get out of the Do you think Schreier and Zacher? Why didn't get out of the locker? What? The whole week? Of course, you mean the Shabbat. If it just says Schreier, so it would just mean make Kiddush and Shabbat. And the whole week you can forget about it. But Zacher means it's continually. Yeah, continuously, one should remember Shabbat. Now, actually, of course, it's the Gemara on Basis. What? No Well, not so. This is part of the union that you have to the days of the week. Have to be geared to Shabbos, Yem Rishon, Yem Sheni, and so on. Based on Alright, you should know that the Rambam that part is also which is important. Alright, no, so continue. So what is Lakayach? Not Lakach. Lakayach is Sefer. It's important here also, not just that he was told once to take the Sefer Sefer. 
And one should be continually taking up the Sefer Teh. Alright, so Rabban says, this is the Gordon What's the Machlaikis thing, Mark Eaton? Whether one can write Whether one can write part of Even according to him, according to whom, would there the, seems to be more reason to be matter? Uh, yeah, according to whom, without, if the Gemara hadn't said, what would I imagine? Maybe that this is totally the Machlech, so Terech Sumanitna, Terech Sumanitna, Terech Sumanitna. So what is it, why the Quran, not Terech Sumanitna, so then what would I say? You can't divide it, you can't, you can only completely. However, so I would say each part was given in separate pieces, so it is separate pieces. So you can write each piece separately. So, and then already, but then would there be any minimum shield as to how little I can write or how much? Do they have to write a whole Megillah? If So then, would there be any minimum as to how little I can write? Or can I write, I have to write a whole, a whole Sedra, a whole Perak, or whole what? Whole parsha. Well, it may be that then you wouldn't. Have, you could write even a little bit, because then if not a whole, as a unit, so if already megillah megillah nitna, so each pasuk already could be separate. Right, but maybe a parsha with Allah of kapasha the pasuk meishar ala paskinah perhaps. But I right, meant so we might have said it's totally that machleik. So the Gemara says it's not totally that machleik. The Gemara says that Abai can be kind of both. But, but what does the Gemara say? The Rai if you hold terech suma nitna, so certainly you couldn't do it. Certainly not. If Terech Sumanit the Midrash is certainly you cannot write a separate Megillah to take this time anymore. However, the Gemara says maybe it comes under the Gedal of Esas and Hashem and Fira Terosech. So and then, but what about Kodna Adama who holds Terech Megillah Megillah Nitna? So then, according to him, maybe Midrash you can write, or maybe you can't. Why perhaps you can't? Oh, even to eat Bagit. In other words, that Kodna Adama Terech Megillah Megillah Nitna, perhaps it's only what? In other words, perhaps it's just Megillah Megillah Nitna means only how. In the process, the way that it was given, the Nesina. However, it was finally Sapposov, maybe once. So maybe now already he agrees that finally, what, it's the end of the 40 years when everything was given. So now already it's Chesuma, the Shadah Zon Lechatchila, how it was given. In other words, what's the Shadah then with the Terra Megillah Megillah Nitna, Terra Chesuma Nitna? I mean, what's the Shadah? What's the problem? So what's the Machlekes? You explain what the Machlekes Before we get to the consequence about Megillah, what's the Machlekes? We simply how the fact was, what the Metzius was. Whether it was all given at once, at the end of the 40 years, or, and what was until the 40 years? What was until then? I mean, the Meshav didn't speak to Meshav in the whole 40 years until the end? What was until then? What? <coughs> yes, in other words, so perhaps it was.
So Rashi says, what does that mean? Rashi and Chubish says, it means the Sefer Abris was more or less what the Ramban interprets. Everything from Breshis down to that point, or the end of Mishpatim. So, if that's the case, so how can anyone say, Terech Sumanit, no, Shetet Rav Nepaz, and he can say for Abris, that they already had until then. The Tzaisa says, in Nira Lafarish, the Lekaramach Sumanit, no, Shalich Tavad Livisay. The Tzaisa says, no. That actually everyone agrees that they wrote until then. But, what was the Machlekes? The question about Allah said the Nichtavah. Whether the sequence that was set up, finally, as we have the Tzaisa, whether that sequence was already right away, initially, or that sequence is only late. That was one Landama said, means all along Taka, kept telling Mesha, and he kept writing. But the violet was just Megillus. When did it become Tehre? As a whole Tehre, the way we have it, with it Seder and so on, all this, conceived as a total entity, was only at the end. The other Landama says no, that he kept writing Tehre, Megillah, Megillah, one Megillah, another Megillah, another Megillah, and continually. And then finally he got up to the end, 40 years. That was the sequence where it was preserved all. Ah, so according to yeah, how the Ramban here seems to say that somehow it was a question actually of Pasha the way they wrote. Yeah, I taste is kasha, so the entire kasha was he can say for Abris. So let's say for Abris. Ramban would interpret according to that man the Ramban, not the way Rashi Chumish. Rashi Chumish says they say for Abris was really from Bereshis down. So first Ramban would say according to that man the Ramban, say for Abris first something else. Maybe it's a Lucas, whatever. All right, but now, so this is one way we can interpret. So there's a question of Megillah of. Simply a question of the Maisa, what happened? Simply the fact. However, we can interpret also differently. It's not a question of Pasha the Matthias, what happened? I mean, Taisa already more or less touches on this problem. Taisa, they wrote before. But Taisa said, still was a problem as to how they wrote it. Whether it was written this say or a different say, how the order was made, it was made later on also. We could actually learn differently that everyone perhaps would agree as to what the Matthias was. The Matthias, everyone would agree about. They wrote it this way, this way. Maybe everyone agrees they wrote it like a straight on the seat. And what's the Machlekes to whether Megillah, Megillah, Nita, Echusumanit? The Machlekes is something else. Now, look at that. I told you last time that Tehra is not just Nebuah, Seshul, Meishu, Rabbein. Meishu had many, many Nebuahs, but we'll see in a minute. I'm not going to discuss it. Tehra and Nebuah actually are distinguished fundamentally, not only because Meishu's Nebuah was of a higher order. But in its very character, in its chefse, not only the way in which Meshe saw, but simply in terms of the, the result, what we have, the Tehra is not Nebuah Hashem It was given through Meshe, but that is Meshe's Nebuah, with Meshe's perception and so on. Something which was nimsot to him, as a Shliach Gaul, and um, to give over to Knesset Yisrael as Tehra. But it's not his Nebuah, his Nebuah was something else. Nebuah is one thing, and Taylor is going to different chefs. So the shining mother perhaps could be the following. This halacha that it became a chefs of Taylor as a unit of Taylor, when did this occur? One man normal says that as a chefs of Taylor, it couldn't be coming to being until the end of the 40 years. Because it's inconceivable to have a chefs which is partially Taylor. Since Taylor has to be complete as a unit, so there is no partial Taylor. So the Vaila, while they were the 40 years, the Meisham kept sending the Vuist to Meisham and so on. But the Chefs of Taylor, it didn't become a Chefs of Taylor until the end of the 40 years. The Chefs of the Taylor that he was given. I mean, what, what you wrote. I don't mean that it wasn't the Chefs of Taylor in terms of the Nebuah. In terms of what he told the Nebuah, they were already Mitzvah. The way someone is Mitzvah and Taylor, they were Mitzvah right away. But if, if it were to be written down, what would it be? Would it be a Chefs of just of Nebuah of Kisra Kedesh? 
would it be already a chapter of Tere? So, one man Rama says Terech Sumanitna. In terms of the Ksiva, it could only be the Vaila Stamachetz of Yitzhakedish of Nevoah. So, while in terms of the Tzivuah, what Nesha got was right away Tere. In terms of the Mitzvah, Marshal, that someone who violated Nesha's Tzivuah in the 40 years was not in the Pachin of Kalaivir on the Navi, that is Chaim Yisid Shemai. He was in the Pachin of a person who was Eivir Anisa, like we are today. But, if one were to record it, what would it be? Would it be a, a Sefer Tere? With all the dinim of Sefer Tere and all the halachas, or would it be just Kisra Kedish? So this man Dama says it was only Kisra Kedish, because he could see what to have Tere Chsuma, since Tere Nitna, there was no Sefer Tere until the end. The other man Dama says, no, Tere Megillam Gilnina. Today, Enochinami, so it's Tere already Chsuma Nitna, today already it's complete, we have the Sefer Tere Shrasa Besach as possible. But what, the way it was given though, that stage to Meshach Rabbeinu. So each part was given to him and immediately when it was established to Meshach and Meshach recorded it, so immediately he recorded it not that the Vali recorded it as Nevuah as Kisra Kedesh and later on it would come Tere. Right away when Meshach recorded it, it was a Chefzav Tere. I think complete. This is only later but the Vali when Meshach was writing it, each part that he wrote immediately was written as a Chefzav Tere. That's why the Gemara says that the whole Shaila of Terah Megillam Gilnitna, Terah Sumanitna, the Gemara discusses not Stam abstractly. The Gemara discusses it in connection with this particular Shaila. The Shaila is whether it's Mutter to write a Megillah Latina Gilisama. What's the Shaila? The Shaila is simple. Simply. The, the halach is when you write Terah, you must write it as Terah. You cannot write Terah Stam as Kisra Kedish. Terah, if it's written, must be written as Terah. You have to distinguish it in Kisra Kedish as a different Kedusha, as a different Dinim. So you have to write it as Tere. So if I wanted to know, so how can you just write a Megillah? Someone will write, will write a parak of Tere, write a Sedre, they write it separately, a little Megillah. Now how can you do it? As such, you can only have a Kedusha of Kisra Kedish. How will it actually get a Din of Tere, of a Sefer Tere? You have to write a Sefer Tere. How can you just write it like this? This will be some Kisra Kedish. So the Gemara says, oh, he said, Chodman, I'm Tere Chesumanitna, Yitaki Ket. Because there was never a time, there was never a moment at which the Tere, uh, and which could have a Sefer of Tere, a Ksav of Tere, which should be any less than the whole thing. So you think you can't write it? According to Mandarma, which says Tere Megillah Megillah Nitna. So here the Gemara has a song. The Gemara says, perhaps since at the moment that it was given, so already one Tere, one Parsha, became already a Sefer Tere, became already a Chefze of Tere Shabbat Ksav, not a Chefze of Nevuah, Kisra Kedish, but a Chefze of Tere Shabbat Ksav, Mimela now, if I need a Megillah for a particular purpose, the Moshe Lord is Latinically Islamate, so I'm allowed to write that parasha also because it has a, a deen of Taylor Shabbat Shabbat. Or perhaps the Gemara says, no, that was only Bishas it was written. Bishas was Nimsa Tamesha, so that moment it had a deen of Taylor Shabbat Shabbat because there was nothing more at that time. But, uh, since later on, finally, we had it the same Taylor completed at the end of the 40 years, so hail the Yidbak with the Gemara calls Yidbak. Now already there's a lot you have one Tere. Anything less than that. So it can't be considered a Kedusha of Echefsa Teresh Mechsav. Now Echefsa Teresh Mechsav, so the Gemara says, so you can't write it. That's the Abayah, the Abayah in the Gemara. So we don't necessarily have to interpret that it's a question of historically what happened. Maybe everyone would agree that uh, Mesha wrote, it was given to him, and he kept writing. But but tell us what was it Nichtiv when he was writing? Did it have temporarily until the end of the 40 years just a Kedusha of Kisra Kedish? Like Stam Kisar Kedish, or was it already a chefza of Teresh Bichsav? The Rav Kamini is whether now you can write a Megillah Latinically Islamic. If Teresh Sumanitna, you certainly can. 
if Megillah Megillah Nitna, then it's a Shailah. Maybe you can, since B'Shaita, already one Perek, one Parsha, had a Lachav Chesav Teresh Mitzav. Or perhaps you can't, because now in retrospect we say, it was t- and now finally what happened, it was completed. So now already, you have to have the whole thing. How we paskin is problematic. I mean, whether you paskin actually in Megillah Nitna, the Raman here more or less takes the view apparently, most Hashanim do. But actually, Allah, if you're allowed to write a Islam, and Machlech is the Rif and Adrishin. I don't want to get involved in, in that question. Simply, as far as Pshat in the in the Gemara Zabayit, yes? How would it hold back us from writing a Megillah? Yeah. Uh, just because uh, it will turn out that it No, because they did an Easter. I'm not allowed to write Taylor. If I write it, I have to write it Kehech Sheva, right? Don't I have to write it Kehech Sheva? Don't I have to write... If I write Taylor, I'm not speaking about we do not write over a positive and so on. But I mean, if you're writing it as Sefer, Kla, Yeh, and so on, it's got to be written Behechsho. And how is Behechsho? Behechsho has to be written as a whole Sefer there. There's only one problem that might come up, I'll talk about it later. These, perhaps each Chumash is a Sefer. Perhaps each Chumash is a Sefer. It, it, it can be considered a tale. Maybe it's muta to write chumash because the Gemara speaks actually about chumash. So that apparently is muta. Actually, where would you see actually that a chumash is in a sense a sefer? Oh, the yeah, but that already is a reflection of that fact. Perhaps each sefer is already a separate. Uh, each chumash is a separate sefer. Imagine without the chisat there may be a difference if a mistake is found on Moshe Filaning in Breshis and you find a mistake or in in Dvarim. So maybe it might make a difference as to whether or not the Kriya was a kosher Kriya. If you found it in, 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 if you're laying in Vayishlach and you found a mistake in Noyach, so it's possible. May, could the shave. However, if, you may, if you're laying in Vayishlach and you found a mistake in Shlach or Bishalach, so maybe it's, it's with it. Yeah, this is very good, but where do you find in the Tehra itself, though, that maybe there's a separate Seifel? From what, what? Yeah, without it. So I'd perhaps very simply, from especially from Sefer Dvarim. Sefer Dvarim, Mishnah Taylor. Mishnah Taylor, we'll see later on as a separate character, yes? It's all Sefer Taylor. Well, this is problematic. All right. The Ram perhaps would uh, say, maybe, maybe. But we'll, 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 we'll listen. Ah, but anyway, so this is the Chud Machlech, the term Gilmitir Sumri. Uh, this will take care of course of Taisa's Kasha. I mean, that's why uh, you can say for Abris, Taisa's bothered. This has nothing to do with the Machlaikis. is not so much in the Seda, but in the, what, what did the Kemah use? Alright, so we have actually two ways so far. We're going to tell Megillah Megillah Nikola Tehsumri. The one is a, that it's a question, simply a historical question. One is it's a question out of history, but of Halacha. What was the status that was given to the Taisa at the moment that it was Nimsa Tamesh when it became immediate to Chesed Tehsha Vichsavana? There's another problem that I just want to touch on, which is relevant, I think, to, to this. Actually, as to what the underlying conception of Tirch Sumanikno is, not so much either in terms of the historical event or simply the halach involved, but what, what actually is the import, more or less philosophically, of the whole conception, really, of Tirch Suman. And what, what's the idea, actually, of Tirch Sumanikno uh, as a whole? As a whole. There is a, there's an important idea, which is, Underlies this and this Teich Sumanitna, and underlies the other halachas as well. And this is very simply the concept that, as far as the understanding Teich is concerned, or in general, as far as knowing what the Chefs of Teich is, that it cannot be treated by in parts. You cannot take it and try somehow to fragment it. In other words, that the Havana of Teich 
and the idea of Teira, and the, what I understand to be the Chesed of Teira, must always be seen in comprehensive terms. I always have to see what the heck is. And uh, this means, uh, this actually may mean a number of things. Uh, first of all, it means that as far as understanding any particular mitzvah is concerned, simply to begin with the detail. I want to know what mitzvah, so I can't just isolate it and say I'll treat uh, part of a mitzvah. I'll take, uh, I'll just know some of the halachas. I, mean, I won't know the others. Uh, I'm only concerned with half, ah, that which is against me immediately, the mice, I mean, the rest, that's a guess. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't learn it. It's not so relevant. Uh, because this one, I'm never able to understand the mitzvah. To understand the mitzvah means to understand it thoroughly, to understand it completely, as far as I can. And to understand not only the suya here, which deals with one detail, but the suya somewhere else, which deals with something else. So I've got to learn that suya there too. Because if I, I, I will never be able to understand the underlying conception, or even to know, I mean, even the part of something I can't know. But even to understand the under, but certainly not to understand the ideas of the time or the underlying nature of a mitzvah, unless I'm able to grasp it in its entirety. Because otherwise, if I only see it from one side, only see one aspect, I will always get what would be not only an incomplete vision, not only that I'll know only half, even the half which I will know will also be incorrect. See, sometimes there are certain things, you know a half, so alright, the half that you know, you know, but uh, honest, you don't know the other half. There are certain things, if you only know a half, you don't even know a half either. Even what you understand is not, is incomplete. As I mentioned once, that's just a quantitative lack. It means even qualitatively, Question of Dava or Lechati Dava, and understanding Yedisatera, because every part, certainly within a mitzvah, in a larger sense than about other mitzvahs, is related to another, and if I don't know one half of a mitzvah, so even the half which I know is also puggled. Of course, it's not possible for a person to know everything, but in terms of what one's desire, what one's aim should be, a person should always seek to understand a mitzvah in its entirety. Otherwise, if I know only one thing, so Achim Marshall, a person should study the mitzvah of Melech. He may only take out certain halachas, a certain concepts, and he may come away with one conception of melech, what the nature of kingship is, what our conception of government is in general. He may come away with a feeling that uh, we have, let us say, an aristocratic conception. He'll study other halachas, another person will just em- will ignore one aspect and will just study other dinim. He'll come away and he'll say, Fakal, we're very big Democrats and we're only interested in the consent of the government and the majority rule and, uh, and so on. And that Kings can be removed at will, and, and so on. I mean, we are on the contrary; we are complete, uh, completely uh, democratic in our in our outlook. Whereas the emissaries is actually that there are elements of uh, both. In one sense, the idea of melucha contains certain elements of aristocracy. On the other hand, I mean, the way in which it's performed is very strongly democratic elements uh, involved. Actually, the Kareios says a halacha, really, what the what Burke derided in the French revolutionaries: that one has a right to cashier a king as soon as he doesn't like him. People don't like the melech; they can just dispose of it. All right, now let's see if we get involved in it. But uh, but in any event, there are kind of kind of mitzvahs of this type that if a person should only knows some of the pratim, he doesn't begin to understand what the nature of the mitzvah. So this is simply as far as individual mitzvah. But even more than this, and here I think the danger is perhaps an even greater one, where you come to deal not with a particular mitzvah, but in terms of seeing our hashkafa in general, uh, understanding the whole hekif. Of, of mitzvahs, and not just a particular mitzvah. It's important that I set a particular mitzvah too. For instance, so I mentioned Shabbos, that if someone should only know, let's say, the halachas of the uh, marshal of the Yisurim and Shabbos, just Yisurim and So one can study and study and study and spend a year and a half learning Shabbos and know all the Pratim and all the Malachas and still come away with a very incomplete conception of what Shabbos is and what the mitzvah of Shabbos is. 
because then one might think of it completely in negative terms as something which is purely restrictive and that the tailor is only interested in taking a person and just confining him completely on Shabbos. It's just the name of somehow imprisoning someone. Whereas actually, of course, the whole union of, uh, of Shabbos is one which has a very strong and a very deep positive content. On the contrary, all of the Yisurim are just a medium really towards the Vayinafash, I mean towards the that a person should in every way try to be uplifted on Shabbos. And this is why actually Chazal emphasized, and again Rashi calls it also Chumash, that that a person shouldn't even think for a moment that these are two disparate concepts that uh, that you can isolate. Now just study the Shomer of Shabbos. I'll forget about it. I know half of Shabbos. The person who only knows the Shomer doesn't even know the Shomer either. He misunderstands completely what is the nature and what is the purpose of Shabbos. So that's why a person has to understand the whole union of Kedusha Sayyayim, the Zohar, and Kiddush, and so on. Kibbut Veineg, I mean all of this in Shabbos, in order to understand even what is the character of the Shabbos. So this is even true with regard to the visual beats, but it's even truer with regard to seeing uh, the relation of mitzvahs independently. The relation of one mitzvah to another, and what very often appear to us to be apparent contradictions, really, between mitzvahs. And when I speak of contradictions, these may be of two types. I mean, you may have sometimes contradictions in terms of a specific situation where you have a direct contradiction. Simply that Lamaisa, I am confronted by two contrasting principles, by two contradictory <coughs> norms, and where I'm faced simply with a problem as to how I am to balance off one against the other. Uh, how I'm to somehow reconcile what seems to be two, two opposites. And we are confronted, you know, simply halacha many times with situations of this type, that we don't, uh, we really have to know how to balance off two things. For instance, uh, take, uh, all right, first I'll give you two, contra- um, two situations with our contradictions as to how one reconciles two principles as to how contradictions should be governed. For instance, take such a concept as mitzvah bar Right, there you have a situation in which I have on the one hand a mitzvah, on the other hand an aved. So, if I've had some guidance to what I should do, so I cannot stick solely within the ramifications of a single mitzvah. Obviously here I'm confronted with a situation where I have to reconcile different mitzvahs which are in this context in direct contradiction. I mean, I have, a, I have all I have is a shayfa, shall I be nizare? Shall I blow shayfa or shouldn't I? I have a mitzvah shayfa, I have a mitzvah of nizare. Uh, what should I do? All I have is a matzah shal Should I eat it or shouldn't I eat it? Allah Karamait. What should I do? So here you have one direct contradiction. But to take even this and to push it a little bit further, so here what's Allah Karamait? Don't do it, right? Because uh, apparently the principle that the end justifies the means is one which is rejected by this Allah. This is what Misa tells us. So we cannot think of the end justifying the means. That actually, that this concept of necessity that I've got to do it and I must override certain hurdles and I've, I can supersede a certain norm in order to achieve another one. So apparently this idea is cancelled out. We can think of it in being what Milton called necessity, the tyrant's place. I reject it. Yeah, but now if we turn around, so there are many halachas with Ratzchis. So someone never heard of the halacha mitzvah He just told of Esad So he would say, Tak this is exactly what the Ashkafa of Tehre uh, accepts this concept that the end justifies the means. Here you have someone and he has a uh, he has the choice of not doing a mitzvah. 
and not doing an Aveira. Or doing an Aveira and thereby doing a Mitzvah. So the Teva says, go ahead and do it. Right? That's what Echelaitis says. There are many such principles of Tchia, when it is Zaycha and when it's not Zaycha. So if someone only do a Mitzvah Echelaitis, he would say on the contrary that we think that the end does justify the Mitzvah. If you only do a Mitzvah of Aveira, so he would say, no, that could not. We think the end does not justify the Mitzvah. So, here again, you have an instance in which, first of all, I give you each particular case. Mitzvah Aveira itself involves a certain clash of two principles of Mitzvah and Aveira. As does that, but then you have, combining these two, you have again a contradiction. Here we say the end justifies the means, and here we say that it doesn't. So, per- so in order to be able to understand, actually, first, I want to know really what is our attitude. What do we really think? Do we really think that there are certain situations in which we may violate a certain ethical norm, a certain moral or religious norm, in order to accomplish a greater good? Or do we think that not, that, you, that any moral imperative is inviolable? You can never violate it in order to accomplish something else. That it's something which can never be broken. So, in order to consider this, one would have to see both of these. But again, it's only if a person understands that he, in order to try to understand Taylor, he has to have a complete view of it. This is why last week I emphasized, or two weeks ago rather, when I discussed the notion of Hashkafa generally, the importance of comprehensiveness, that one cannot try to understand to have Hashkafa say, or the Hadus, by considering only one element. Not only because you won't know the rest, even what you know you also don't know. You are led completely astray. And this is why, actually, with regard to right there, in Zohar Vishamer, Rashi quotes it. Zohar Vishamer, Rashi, B'dibu the Chayin Rashi says, Moshe quotes other cases. The Chayin Yevama Yavayolayad Mitzvah Yibim and the Isur of Eishasach. The one is not allowed to marry his, his wife, his uh, brother's wife, and yet it's a Mitzvah Yibim. Or similarly, Mechalayim Esumas, Nisum Lachal Shabbos, Yevam Shabbos Shneich Vasi, that a person that Abayde is Daicha Shabbos. So what is Rashi trying to emphasize? What all these things have in common? It's a Mechilte. This is what Mechilta is trying to say, that <coughs> there are certain areas, apparently, where what? Where we have two seemingly contradictory principles, and where one is overridden the other, and yet we are not to see this as, as an abandonment of the other. It's not that we say, Aved is Zecha Shabbos, you forget about Shabbos. It means that some of this integrated within Shabbos proper. It's B'dibu when again, just like Zecha B'shamah is B'dibu that you cannot understand the Shabbos without the Zecha, even though here it's not a question of contradiction. You don't violate the Shabbat by making Kiddush. You violate the Yisra Malachah, the Lamatess Malachah, when you make Kiddush. Or you make Kiddush, Kibbutz Ve'edeh. Or when you shave it, certainly not. So what does Rashi introduce in the other things? This is what Rashi means. That just as Zohar Vishabar, you can only understand one with the other. And in order to have a harmonious and integrated view of what Shabbat means, you must know both aspects. Similarly, in other areas where you actually have a contradiction, Avoid the Shabbos, and so on. So you want to understand how is it? So also you must see that this is not a case of one breaking the other, but these both fall into place within a larger whole which integrates them both and is greater than each of them individually. How how is it done? All right, so you have to go learn it. What are the klolim for tchias and hutros and tumas? I mean, it's a it's a complicated thing. But you have to recognize that this is not a question of one breaking the other. They are both find a common fulfillment within a greater. So this is one type of contradiction that you have, so to speak, within mitzvahs, where this, the importance of recognizing their, uh, their fuller integration within a more comprehensive whole becomes important. 
But there's a perhaps an even more important element, and one which particularly from a practical point of view is more important, of seeing seeming contradictions between mitzvahs, not in terms of this sort of direct contradiction. That somehow it's Avoida uh, and Shabbos, Mitzvah and Tumer, Yibn and Eshesach. I mean, not in terms of these immediate contradictions. But simply, Allah Lamaite, you are confronted by the question should you eat Matishal Chodosh or shouldn't you eat the Matishal Chodosh? But in a larger sense, where there are seeming contradictions and seeming difficulties in reconciling the general direction, the general import, uh, which seem to be communicated or suggested by certain mitzvahs generally, or certain hashkafes, certain ideas, which are conveyed by certain halachas, by certain halachas. In other words, that there are certain mitzvahs, let us say, which seem to suggest that we have one type of hashkafe, uh, that we are very liberal, let us say, or very humanitarian. There are others which seem to suggest that we are very rigorous, we are very demanding. There may be certain mitzvahs which seem to have an aesthetic <laughs> ring to them, that somehow we want to not to mortify, perhaps, but to deny certain pleasures. Uh, we do not want to accept the world, so to speak. There are other mitzvahs which seem to suggest uh, precisely the reverse, that we do not reject the world, or the contrary, we, we accept it. So that, uh, from one point of view, it might be seen that we somehow are among those, I mean, William James, you know, Variety of religious experience try to classify religions on this basis, those which are world accepting and world rejecting. So, from one aspect, we seem to fall into one group. Other mitzvahs seem to suggest that we fall into the other. And so on. There are many, many examples of this type. So that if we take only a partial view, if we don't, or even more than this, even if we try to see all mitzvahs, but somehow don't recognize the tchsumanitna, if we don't recognize the unity and the integration of Taylor, so we could very well come to consider that somehow we're here confronted with a, with a contradiction. I mean, that somehow this doesn't fit with the other, and uh, that we really would find ourselves in a, in a moment. And this is exactly, why is this so important? Well, this is exactly the point of departure for a great deal. I, mean, I don't say it's the only point of departure, but for a great deal of uh, what passes under the name of higher biblical criticism, a great deal of the criticism which has been directed in terms of textual criticism that's been directed at Taylor, and in general, a great deal of the criticism that's been directed by Maskilim and others, Aloha and other aspects of it, of, te- of, y- of Yahadus, derives from this very point. The, the failure or the lack of a desire in many cases, sometimes simply a failure of the inability to do so, to be able to reconcile within a broader uh, view uh, seemingly contradictory aspects of Taylor and of halach, and the insistence on taking what very often has been a very simplistic sort of view, uh, that uh, things must be, either you are completely this or you're completely that, either you're a liberal or you're a conservative, and you're talking that you should be somehow both a conservative and a liberal, or that somehow you cannot be labeled, you cannot be pigeonholed uh, and tabbed in a particular way and uh, by a particular tag, I mean, it's, it's impossible, so either you're this or you're this, and if you're somehow the tailor is not so easily labeled, and if one does find within it very many complex strands and many seemingly divergent tendencies, so a person who has a simplistic and a very <coughs> rationalistic sort of conception, look, so there's one, there's one answer, so this is the, this is the liberal tailor, written by one person, or the conservative tailor, written by someone else, and this is one tendency, this is another tendency. And what does it stem from? 
It's then it's actually one tendency that you is very was very prevalent in a great deal of nineteenth century thought generally and the period when this sort of approach became prevalent. Uh, the tendency to restrict very much, to limit one's notion of the possible, of, uh, to take a very narrow and a very constricted view of what one considers to be possible generally, and po- I mean, simply Matthias, and possible also in terms of uh, what one thinks can be integrated within a single system. I mean, how varied, how complex, and how seemingly contradictory can a single philosophical religious system be? And uh, a great deal of this sort of criticism has developed out of a feeling that it, can be, it cannot be very uh, embracing, it cannot be very comprehensive, that everything must fit very neatly into a pattern which is easily comprehensible, which is easily integrated, and uh, where everything seems to be cut more or less of one cloth. As I said, this tendency is not one which is necessarily limited to... I mean, to the criticism of Taylor, the criticism of Halacha, it's manifested in other respects. I simply speak of the cast of mind that has produced it. I mean, just to give you one example, something which is perhaps relevant to textual criticism of Taylor also, uh, for instance, to take this tendency to limit the realm of possibility uh, very much. Uh, you know, there's, a great, there's been a great controversy for the last, uh, oh, 170 years uh, with regard to, well, there were echoes of it before, but I mean, it became prevalent uh, since 1795. Great controversy with regard to the authorship of Homer. Homer was written by one person, by many people. Well, it's a I mean, in 1795, a man by the name of Wolf published a, prolog- a prolegomenon, the study of Homer, and he advanced this theory of multiple authorship that can't be the one person who wrote all of Homer. Why can't it be? I mean, did Wolf find evidence that it wasn't so? Did he have any. Any proof? Did he find any documents or any historical evidence that wasn't so? But Wolf couldn't understand how is it possible that one person, in particular a person reputed to, traditionally to be blind and to have written oral poetry, that didn't write it as a record, how is it possible for one person to have memorized so much poetry? I mean, after all, the Iliad and the Odyssey combined run to about 28,000 lines. Think. So the Chlapa. <laughs> But it's not how is it possible that one person should have written so much and written it orally? Yet? It's impossible. All right. So, and throughout the 19th century, this sort of notion was pretty much accepted. This multiple authorship. Vachashev, but some research has made in the problem. A fellow in Germany, I forget his name, a fellow, but uh, a fellow who not only was not a great scholar but was illiterate, couldn't read. Couldn't read, but the Parsifal, the epic on which Wagner's opera is based, I mean, a Germanic epic, the Parsifal, which ran through 24,000 lines, he knew by heart. And then they found Bushmen in Australia who knew the author And they had oral epics which ran to 40,000 lines, which, could, which they also recited Balpet. When I say Balpet, I don't mean, uh, uh, I don't mean that they knew the specific line-by-line text, but they, I mean, they could recite a poem of this length, they would have sock formulas and so on, I mean, they would make minor modifications, but uh, they would recite, I mean, poems of this length. So, ah, so that theory that it's not possible was more or less abandoned, and so today the general consensus is that the unity of Homer, at least the unity of the Iliad and the Odyssey, respectively, in other words, that the Iliad at least was written by one person, 
uh, most Homeric scholarship is willing to accept. But uh, again, this depends on one's approach. It's not that they found much in the way of new evidence. I mean, there is some which has dealt with evidence too, but a lot of it, the gist of the controversy is turned not on, on concrete evidence, but simply what one conceived to be possible for an oral poet. Or again, to take another example, I mean, just a week or two ago, I was reading uh, Gibbon's autobiography, so Gibbon, of course, the great skeptic. So he quotes a letter that was written to him by David Hume, who was another great skeptic, and uh, uh, Hume writes to Gibbon after Gibbon's, um, uh, one of his volumes, it appears, so Hume writes to him, and he congratulates him generally. He was very pleased, of course, with Gibbon's work, because it was very strongly critical in a ironic sort of way, but it was strongly critical of Christianity. And he says that uh, he's very right that he criticized the works of Ossian. It was a, a Scotchman in the 18th century, the name of Macpherson. And uh, this fellow produced voluminous poems which he purported to, uh, which he said were written by um, a, in Gaelic, and he translated in Gaelic, or in Celtic, I think, by a man with the name of Ossian, was written in the 3rd century. But they were all, they were, they were lost, and he, he found them. So there was great controversy at the time as to whether these were genuine or not. As a matter of fact, uh, Boswell in the life of Johnson quotes an interesting remark that Johnson made to him about it. Uh, John, Boswell asked Johnson uh, when Ossian's uh, when the first of poems came out, so he asked him whether he really <coughs> thought. I mean, Johnson thought they were a forgery. I mean, they they really were, but uh, Johnson thought they were a forgery. But uh, Boswell asked him, uh, how did he think there was a forgery? I mean, after all, he says, sir, do you think it would be possible for any man in this age to produce such a poem of this type? So Johnson replies, well, of course, many men, many women, and many children. <laughs> so, anyway, so Hume, it's a given thought that Ossian was furious, which, as it turned out, it was, it was later discovered. But um, uh, Hume congratulated him for this, and he said, why? How did he know? Because, obviously, it would have been imp- impossible, he says, for any man living, especially in so many centuries ago, and in a rude and barbarous and literate age, to have produced any poem of this type. So again, uh, what was it? It's again the application of this sort of a priori reasoning to what you assume to be possible or not. Uh, this is similar to the textual area, but I'm not concerned so much with these, uh, uh, this textual uh, problem, but more specifically with regard to what one conceives to be possible simply within a, uh, a philosophic system. And here again, the same sort of corrosive criticism has been at work, uh, taking its point of departure particularly from this notion as to what you assume really can be conceivable. I mean, what, what's possible really? I mean, let's say, uh, you assume, let us say, that any given religion must have a single unitary conception uh, of the Rabbanish Leila. I mean, so either you have a conception, let us say, a Calvinistic conception, terrible, terrifying, sort of omnipotent, almighty deity, or you have the uh, conception, which, let us say, liberal Protestantism has, of a uh, very different sort, of one was very well characterized, not so much as a father in heaven, but a grandfather in heaven. I mean, uh, very, very nice, sort of benevolent, uh, benevolent despot, uh, gives, gives out sugar and spice, and so on. But that a religion should have a conception of both, and that somehow uh, there should be both a vision of Revenge as being somehow awesome and mighty, and also at the same time it's being very close to one, very kind. This involves a contradiction. How is it possible? So if you have text, some of which point one way and some the other way, so again, I mean, there's a simple answer. So this is written by one, and this is written by someone else. Or particularly, where you have this 
developed most fully in historical criticism and biblical criticism, and also in criticism of halakha. I mean, it's the same, but it's particularly it's in more manifest with regard to biblical criticism. It's with regard to the conception of the relation between Teira and Nevi. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this. Actually, not familiar with British years for me, it's familiar somewhere else. But <laughs> one, of the, uh, one of the central tenets of biblical criticism is the following notion that uh, uh, during the period of the earlier periods, that uh, then you had a conception of which of, of Taylor and of, uh, of religion, which was first of all very cultic, in other words, very ritualistic. In other words, it focused particularly on uh, on worship, on uh, prayer, on sacrifice, things of this type. Uh, this is number one. So it's very cultic. It's very focused almost completely upon ritual. Uh, secondly, that it was very localized, that uh, it was very tribal. In other words, that initially Yadus was a very tribal sort of religion, and it, was, it only conceived of uh, you know local practices involving Knesset Yisrael, but it didn't have any sort of view of the nature of uh, of the world at large, of the Benjamin's relation to it. It just saw the Benjamin as a sort of a local Shalomai, <laughs> as a sort of a local deity, as sort of a tribal uh, warlord uh, helping the helping the Jews in the desert and taking them out of the out of bondage through the desert and into Israel and uh, this is the whole conception and uh, I, in other words so one of three things that it was very cultic secondly it was very local and, and thirdly that the conception of the Ben Shalom also was very local not only local but also militant and the Ben Shalom is a tribal god and always fighting and this is the conception however this is only the earlier phase Exactly, how early, how late, I mean, this they disagree about it. But then, that's Chagolast, a new spirit in the world, about the 6th or 7th century before the Common Era, and then begins not the, what they call the, this sort of, uh, of conception, which is prevalent in Chumash, but then begins the prophetic vision. This is what Ben-Gurion also is very fond of. And then the prophetic vision already, this is something new. I mean, then you begin to hear... First of all, not a cult and ritual. There's not very much in Nevi'im, relatively speaking. There's not very much about you know about these type of mitzvahs, tefillin, the Shabbat, and so on. Of course, there's Sukkim and Yomiyo and so on, but uh, but there's relatively little of this, and there's more uh, about the ethical norms. It's mostly about moral considerations and moral categories. Number one. Secondly, that it's uh, more universal in scope. That uh, this becomes. Then you speak not only of the Ben Shleilim as well in his relation to Knesset Yisrael, but in his relation to the Ume Yisraelim as well. After all, there are many Prakim and Yomayo, particularly near the end, which are devoted to this, and so on. And thirdly, that this militant element is also gradually purged off, and this conception of the Ben Shleilim is a militant element is purged off. And instead, what you have is got another conception of the Ben Shleilim thought of in moral terms, a moral God concerned about moral values, rather than this sort of militant fighting thing. And uh, those who, some historians who really have tried to embellish this, so they say this is not only a purification of our religion, this is in general that there occurred at this time a sort of religious purification. It coincides uh, a little bit later with the gradual change that you have in, uh, in Greece, the first, the abandonment of Homeric religion for in, in favor of what you have uh, later on, a more philosophic <coughs> type of religion. And uh, similarly, just a little bit later, you have already in the East, I mean, the, uh, the emergence the emergence of the early elements of Buddhism and so on. But in any 
event, so this is the usual, uh, this is the usual line, so to speak, which is taken by, by biblical criticism. And what does it, again, what does it spring from so much? The, the same type of conception. In other words, the inability to conceive that somehow there should be a religion within which there should be an emphasis, a strong emphasis, on one avenue of Avedis Hashem, the avenue of Korbanis, of Avaida, this type of religious experience, and at the same time that there should be a very strongly ethical conception of life. So what do you do? So there's an easy way out. It means the, the religious, the cultic element is one, the ethical element is another. So one was written by one person, one by another person. Even better, one belongs to one historical period, one belongs to another, to a second historical period. And uh, similarly, you speak of a constant development in terms of one's conception of the Rabbi Shleilam, that here you have one type of conception, you have another type of conception. Whereas actually, and Chazal already were very much aware of this, actually if one has a proper idea of what to understand material chassumanit, now again here's the importance of it, we understand that Chassashalim, there's no division here between Teir and Avim, between a prophetic vision and a Pentateuchal vision, that this is one period and this is another period, but the Terech Sumanitna, and this is all part of one, of one Terech, one Hashkafe. And within our Hashkafe, there is a tremendous emphasis on Aveda in terms of direct religious experience, Tzila and so on. There is at the same time a tremendous emphasis on, uh, on ethical norms. So there's Terech, Aveda, and Chasarim. There is an ethical norm, which is one of pillar. There is Aveda in terms of our direct religious experience. Which is another one. Similarly, with regard to our conception of the Ben Shleilam, Chazal already were aware of this sort. I mean, long before this biblical criticism came along, Chazal noted this. I mean, that somehow that there are these two conceptions, and that someone will someday come along and will say that that's one Torah but two Torahs, that's one God but two gods. So what does the Mechilta say? The Mechilta says this was Ben Shem said Aleich Hashem Alekech. Sort of Gilu, there was the Sinai with his Galus of, of Rachmim and the Shefa of Chesed and Toiv. So one might think it's two deity, it's a different world. It's, that's one period, this is another period. So this is the Anoichi, Anihu. I mean, I'm the, I'm the same one. And particularly, perhaps, an emphasis on Hashem and Olakech. You know, the, the Hashem, the Shem of Havaya, the Shem of Rachmim, and Olakim is the Shem of Din. But not that it's either Din or Rachmim. It's one. So the Ben Shleilam incorporates within him, in a way that we don't quite understand, of course, a mitzvah of din, of complete din, and complete rachmim, which are somehow synthesized. I mean, how it's synthesized, the Mkubalim discuss. It's not my area. But these are part of one conception. This is what we say also in the Shirakovet. The many different visions that we have of the Ben Shleilam. But nevertheless, we emphasize. All visions, all images that we have are just manifestations. Sometimes we see one aspect, sometimes we see another aspect. But even when we are only seeing one aspect, we realize that actually uh, there is another aspect too. Right now I don't see it. Right now the Rebbein is gala to me in one p'china, but there are other p'chines. And I never for a moment imagine that what I'm seeing is the whole thing. And this is the Ram Lossin, you say that there, right away in the first time. The Ram uh, more or less referring to probably to that in the uh, The Ram says that 
what different Nevi'im saw, all sorts of anthropomorphic elements, the Ramesan Ephchazashalom, there's an anthropomorphic element in it. These are just images, visions, these are symbols through which Nevu'ah is communicated. V'hakar el-Moshal. V'chayel ha-dovas ha-dram, sh'novi echa doimeh, wa-novi seh, sh'horah ha-kadosh bo'uchu, l'avushik yitlag chivah. There's l'avush, it's like snow, white snow. V'echod ro'ohu, nishayo, sizim go, chamutz b'godim mi-bot. What does it mean? One novi says God, the Ben Yishleilam, not the Neil describes him as being an old zakin, long white beard, and not militant, and just <laughs> somehow just benevolent, and that's all. And the other end, Yishayo speaks, Chamutz B'Godim Ibotra. B'Godim just coming full of blood, blood spattered. B'Godim has just come from some sort of bloodbath, some sort of vengeful deity, and full of ire and wrath. But it's the same of Enishleim. Meishir Abbeinu Atzimai saw the Ben Yishleim with two visions. Here it's two different Nevi'im. This is the Nehru Sishayo. But Meishir Abbeinu himself saw different Maris. Ro'u al-hayom ki gibberai semilchama. U'besinai ki shulech tziburatov. Go'u besinai, so right after. Besinai itself, later on. But you give him bidet, he saw him go ki shulech tziburatov, natale semilchama. And the last person in the world you would imagine is going out to, to conduct a battle. So that it's the same notion, and not only, but what's important is not only that to recognize that there are these different elements within one vision, but that even when I'm seeing one, I know the other is there. This is actually why the Pasuk says, Hashem Yishmil Hashem Shmoy. What's the repetition in the second half? Because actually, what is Hashem really is always the Shem of Rachmi. The Shem Abayah is the Shem of Rachmi. So what is Hashem Abayah? So I say, Hashem Yishmil Amol is Rechti, even the Shem Abayah itself, even the Ben Shalem, as Rachmim, must conduct Milchomer. But even when I see him as an Yishmil I know that it's Hashem. I know it's Hashem Shmoy. Not that I imagine really when I see him as an Yishmil I imagine it's Kulay, what? It's Kulay Milchomer. No, I say it's Hashem Shmoy, it's one of the Shmoy. And this actually, you see, this is the fundamental error also of polytheism. What did the Greeks imagine? I mean, the Greeks didn't recognize that there is some sort of transcendental order. The Greeks knew, the Greeks had an insight into the supernatural. They knew that there is there are gods, I mean, what degree, that there is some sort of order over and above what you see in nature. I mean, the Greeks were not so stupid. They didn't think that a table in front of them runs the world. They knew. But what was it they couldn't perceive? They couldn't see somehow that it can be nichla. That somehow it can be, that can be one. So, so, what, so what, what do they arrive at? They arrive at the conclusion of the whole pantheon. Nechama, Mars, Halayom, Neptune, it was a whole order somehow, a whole phalanx had to be established to take care of everything. Because also, this inability somehow to grasp the comprehensive nature of the Matthias of the to see somehow that it's Shaykh should be chesumanit. And this is something which applies not only to our understanding of Tera, our understanding of Halochim, it applies also to our understanding of, of <laughs> other elements. I mean, I mentioned before, of, uh, the, well, now I've spoken of Shulchan Baruch for instance, the Relation the marshal of particularism and universalism within Tehran Halach. As I mentioned before, you have some who say, well, Yahadus is a very local religion. Very, it's only, it's very parochial, it's concerned only with one, only with ourselves, not concerned with anyone else. Uh, whereas other religions, you know, Christianity is a universal religion, it's a world religion, it speaks for everyone. Others will say, no, it depends on some periods like this, some periods like this. Whereas actually the emphasis, of course, there is in us an element of particularism. There is a sense in which Les Yisrael is particular. We're very parochial, very parochial. We're a closed group. Closed group. And there is a sense in which we have a world vision, a universal vision. And actually, we speak of the Moshe Marches, the Chedis Hashem, as I quoted, it's an article. 
Malchus is completely universal. Zechayinus, and Shevkes is completely local. Completely by Knesset Yisrael, and yet it's integrated in one Seder, one Seder Brachis, because both are part of one uh, of one view. So we don't see it in any way as a Tata de In the same way that the ethical and the religious element is also not a Tata de Saskin, they are part of one element. This is actually what the Gemara Institution says. The Gemara says, Omarov, I believe it is, Pastor, what else? The Gemara says, Yeducha Hashem kol malcheyeret kishom wim reiticha. If they would have only heard one Maimer, they would have heard one thing of the Rebbein Shalom, one Debrev, so they would not have acknowledged the Rebbein Shalom. When did they acknowledge? They acknowledged when they heard everything. Why? So the Gemara says, because when they only heard the Debrev's Rishonis, they only heard the beginning, so what did they say? They said what all the, all the critics say. They said, aha, you know what kind of a god this is? All he's interested in is his own covenant. He's a very demanding deity, and he's, all he wants is its obeisance and worship. He's not concerned with the building the world along moral and ethical lines. All he's interested in is that people should give him sacrifices and offerings, and uh, they should appease him, and otherwise he gets angry right away, and vengeful, and wrathful, and he threatens, and he punishes, and uh, that's it. That's what, that's, what, if they, that's what they would have said if they didn't know the that they would only have heard the Dibre Sarishenit, if they would have this sort of narrow view, <laughs> that a, you have to think of the Benishlam as being, or a religion, as, or as Yahadus, as being very narrow. But as soon as they heard the Dibre Sarishenit, then they heard God, and what is it again? If a man is often, if, uh, if a man kills someone else, or if he, or if he honors his father, he gives his father a glass of water, doesn't give him a glass of water. If he tells the truth, or doesn't tell the truth. If he's, if he's boiled his own wife or someone else's wife, what does the Benishlam care? This is a God of a different order. This is a God of an ethical God. This is a God who's worried about morality. So then they realized. So then already, they, they realize no, it's a whole tale, and it's not just the Ben Shalom who has one aspect, but both aspects. Actually, if a person only heard the beginning of the tale, if a person only had a partial insight, if a person thought that one part is all there is to tale, Maybe he wouldn't even recognize the Emmets. He would take a think uh, that who knows? Maybe Chas Maybe it's just uh, uh, this type of God, this type of religion, and it's primitive and so on. But when he sees Seidvacha, then this, then he begins to recognize the complexity and the comprehensiveness of Tera as a whole. And this is true. I want to emphasize this true not only Tera and Halach. It's true also, for instance, in our view, let us say, of our history. I mean, you know, there are people who say. I mean, there are people who. All right, all right. Okay, there are people who say the marshal at David Amelach, the marshal couldn't have been a balaloch. When did he have? When did he have time? I mean, first of all, when did he have time to learn? I mean, first, he was busy, uh, busy fighting so many wars and busy governing and busy, uh, busy writing Tilly. Then others say he couldn't. <laughs> he couldn't have written Tilly either. Why? Because I was a child, a person so militant and so on. Should write a sefer like Tilly? How you talk? Well, that's impossible. Here you have a book full of uh, lyrical, soul-searching, and so on. 
and uh, such devout religious experience, it doesn't fit in somehow with the picture of Zavi that you have in uh, in Shmuel, but as a in this type of um, of critique. And uh, again, what does it stem from? It stems first of all from ignorance, partly. As I mean, a person who argues in this way probably never heard of Philip Sidney, who also did all of these things. But uh, I'm not. I'm a part. I'm not concerned now with the feeling on historical grounds. But what it comes from is essentially a certain a priori narrowness. In other words, I have a very limited conception of the human mind, a limited conception of religion, a limited conception of what I understand to be the mention. Of course, in our own century, I mean, this is just a way of information, uh, in our own day, a great deal of this has been uh, weakened. In other words, this sort of prevalent tendency, which was much stronger in the 19th century, to have this very limited approach that it's either this or this, and somehow everything has to fit into a certain ideological uh, trap or a certain ideological mold and either you fit strictly here or you fit strictly there and if not so we somehow have to break you up and we give your legs to one period and your head to another period and we slice you up all around uh, this in our century has been much uh, weakened I mean, uh, in our the tendency I'm speaking now of the tendency of religious thought and theology generally uh, the tendency has been to get further and further from this and to recognize much more the complexity of, um, or the potential complexity of religious thought and of religious philosophy. If anything, maybe now, you know, they've gone already <laughs> too far to the other side. I mean, there are some who not only say that a religion can be paradoxical, but that the more paradoxical, the more religious. Vas melsilis, vas besa. A notion which, to a certain extent, of course, is popularized, well, I shouldn't say popularized in his day, but... Uh, which is present to a certain extent, not only to a certain extent, and in Kierkegaard, a man who lived in the 19th century, in the mid-19th century, but who uh, was virtually unknown, almost no one read him in the 19th century, was only discovered really in, uh, in this century, and he's had a tremendous influence, and this notion of uh, something as being paradoxical and of containing certain contradictions, that uh, this is very fruitful in the country for religious thought, uh, this notion has become widely accepted. As I say, if anything, maybe perhaps too much so. So now you meet many people who think that, forget, that unless a, something is, contains contradictions and paradoxes, that it cannot quite uh, really rate as, a, as something significant. You can't have a, anything simple. And we should steer away from that approach too. But uh, to this extent, it's been a salutary development in that it has given us an increased awareness of the fact that we don't have to think in simplistic terms, but that we can be willing to entertain. Uh, a religious system within which there are many apparent contradictions and yet recognize that uh, these exist as part of a uh, of a larger whole. And this is why it's always been so important you see, to recognize the simply with regard to Tamutera itself I mean without any philosophic thing simply with regard to Mitzvah of Tamutera to recognize the Hekif of Tera. I mean while Moshe and Sanhedrin no one could sit in Sanhedrin unless he knew Kala Look, why do you have to know Kolaterakul? Vasofashad, but he's not going to try Kolaterakul in each case. Alright, so when the case will come up, which he doesn't know, so someone else will to try the case. I wish they does know that. If he doesn't know Kachim, so he can't examine a case of Nishvach. I mean, uh, so what's wrong? Why was it so, so requisite? The person, since I didn't know, he had to have the whole heck. He had to know some of the whole Ashvach. And more than this, the Ram says, not only to sit in Sanhedrin, the Ram says that a, the Ram says a person could not receive smiche unless he were a person who was qualified to know Kolaterakulim. 
He didn't have to know it actually, but he had to be a person who is In other words, Ram says when you give someone smicha, you don't have to give him smicha for everything. You can tell him, I, I empower you to pass in Shaila's dog in the Chesnida, in the Chesnadari, in the Chesnadari. But you cannot give him this limited smicha unless you know that he's a person who is qualified to paskin all over. He knows, or he can know, I mean, he doesn't have to know right now, but if you'll sit down to study it, he will know all over. Why? What's wrong? So let us have, we'll have a departmentalized system. So we'll have, I mean, like we have in general law, so a person knows, this one knows taxation, and this one knows tort, and this one knows something else. But the answer is very simple. A person actually would only have this limited conception of Taylor within one area, so even in that area he's pumped. Because it's Tereh Sumerita. So one Tereh, in order to pass in the Shali here, I must at least be aware of the Hekif of Tereh. Of course, I don't, it doesn't mean that when I pass in the Shali about Sumerhalov, I've got at that moment, my head has to be stuffed full of every single detail in every other area. Of course, it's impossible. But at least I must be able to see this within the larger framework. I must know the frame of reference, even though I don't know the detail. And I cannot know the frame of reference unless I've studied and I know all over. If I just know one limited area, so I don't know what the frame of reference is, I don't know the framework. And then my knowledge even here is imperfect. So in order to get smicha, I'm talking about the Emesis smicha. I mean, our smicha has a more modest uh, demand. Uh, but I mean, the Emesis smicha. So uh, one needed to have a quantum of ram, he needed to be able to see the uh, any Shaila in total perspective. And without this, he couldn't have passed. This is why also, you see, you know, sometimes you <laughs> talk around the Yeshiva and I Shiva and other Yeshivas, you have this loose talk about uh, learning the Sichtas, you know, so uh, this is practical, this is not practical, this is relevant, this is not relevant. I, uh, I'm not saying that there isn't perhaps something to it. I'm not, I'm not saying that perhaps in terms of an individual, say that Alimud, that one, uh, that perhaps there might be grounds for giving preference sometimes to learning one Masikh ahead of another. But still, this is very dangerous and very loose talk. Not because necessarily it's wrong. I mean, maybe perhaps, I'm not passing judgment now on this particular issue, maybe sometimes at a particular stage, it's better a person should learn Sachim, but the Gelemaite, Christ, and learn the Zvach. But still, the talk is dangerous because very often what underlies it is not the motive which should underlie it. If a person should entertain this kind of talk at all, so how should he entertain it in the following spirit? person should say, it's important to know everything, and in order to know anything, I really should be able to see the whole perspective, the whole frame. But what can I do? I've got to start somewhere. I mean, a person's got to enter the ocean at one point. You cannot be in New York and plunge into the ocean at the Canary Islands. So what can you do? So you've got to begin at one point. All right, so I might select the most advantageous point to begin. Maybe here there's a beach, it's easier to go into it. And maybe here the water is warmer, and maybe here it's less dangerous. And as a bite, I mean, there are different reasons why I might want to enter at this point. But I recognize, you see, that it is a heck yes. I know that it's all relevant and all interrelated, and that in order to understand Teirah Kishle Musa and Kitsurasa, I've got to know all of it. And that would be the proper attitude. But sometimes the way what underlies the attitude that you sometimes hear pronounced is a very different sort of attitude. The attitude, and anyways, and it's remote, and it's not and it's not important, and uh, all right, one can do without it. And what if someone does not know? 
I mean, not the Mishnah and the one who when will, does he ever expect to steal a Sada and to know how to hunt him? With a Nigzon and a Gazan and a Keach and a The whole thing is remote. But, but actually, but this is, it's a dangerous, and it's dangerous, I want you to understand. It's dangerous not only because I can show you where Shvach is relevant. I mean, what? Art, I'll tell you, if you want to understand our Shkafer, for instance, our conception of art, you have to understand this to give Shvach. I just give you one example, but it doesn't, it doesn't strike you immediately. But I, well, I take my word for it about it. If you want to come down and discuss it, but uh, I don't say not only because of because of this particular point, and not only art. I'll give you. I mean, more than this. I mean, if you want to understand, for instance, if you want art, I mean, we're studying about Kama, I mean, I have no time to, to go into an education. If you want to understand, our, I mean, a conception, a very basic point. I mean, a conception of labor, of property. I mean, of what a person's Role. I mean, what our, actually should our attitude towards labor be? And for instance, yesterday's paper there was an item published by presidential. I mean, this is the by presidential commission to the effect that the uh, that a new sort of situation should be set up. I mean, uh, that our general attitude towards economic relations should be completely changed. That the whole conception of remuneration for labor should be abandoned, and there should be a new idea. Simply that there should be a guaranteed income. For everyone, if you work, you don't work, simply it should be a new Well, I, no, what do they mean by traditional attitudes? They mean traditional attitudes governing the relation between labor and its reward. In other words, the attitude taken towards work generally. And uh, the general, the prevailing attitude, of course, generally has been that we should talk about Shabbos, Yechel, be Shabbos. I mean, that's uh, no tiki, no washi. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's been the general attitude. But... All right, but to what extent really is an attitude of that sort valid? To what extent is labor a virtue, for instance, independently of this? What, how do we really look upon work? I mean, really, should a person's motivation in working be in order to earn a living, to make money, to have money, to have property, to be able to meet his means? Are there other motivations? I mean, what, how do we really look upon labor as such? And what is the relation, for instance, between... Or to take another example, a problem which sociologists have been tremendously disturbed by in our generation. The, and only, or, for instance, not in our generation. Take a, I mean, for instance, an excellent book by Raymond Williams entitled Culture and Anarchy. Uh, and not Culture and Anarchy, I mean... That's, what's that? That's uh, Matthew Arnold's book. What's the... Culture and Society, I'm sorry. Culture and Society. Which traces, really, down from 1780 down to our period, more or less. I mean, it's about 1950. The attitude towards the uh, the problem, uh, very vexing social problem, towards the gradual dehumanization of work and labor, the way more and more it's become more and more mechanical and the more and more depersonalized. I mean, the sort of thing that Carlyle and Ruskin and Tony and so on was so tremendously disturbed by, and all the implications of this for uh, for social theory, for economic theory, I mean, simply in terms of basic human values. And uh, the role, let us say, that work should play in uh, the relation between work and creativity. Or even take a point, for instance, that Hannah Arendt discusses in her book on the human condition. Uh, we have two words in English, work and labor. And there are two words almost in every language, avoided and malach. In almost every language, there are two words to cover work. Do they suggest different things or not? And do, is there any distinction, really, between the whole attitude towards the relation of labor to productivity? I, I'm not, I mean, these are problems. I'm not obviously not going to solve them right now. 
But it's hard, to, I will say this much, it's hard to understand them, I mean, from our, uh, to understand our point of view with reference to them, if you don't understand really, if you don't know, the conception of, I mean, of Shvach, and the relation of Shvach to a Meshbiach, Shvach to Yitzhiyah, and so on. I mean, even the point I discussed yesterday, I mean, if someone, if you get Shvach, Machmas Yitzhiyah, this is Allah, that you have a Schus in Shvach, that you acquire what you produce, or it's an independent thing of Schiris. There's a fundamental philosophic point involved. I, I mean, I didn't tell you at the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you should know this. There's a, it's, it's a tremendous difference whether Shvach Machmas means that what I produce I have a right to, uh, which is more or less Marx intends, of course, or it means that simply what I produce I have no right to. I, why do I get wages? That's an independent thing. Some wages is something which is independent of the product that I produce. These are, these are two tremendously I would recommend to you in, in Aaron's book that you may, you know, her name now is a little uh, anathema in our circles, but uh, I mean, she wrote some good books. And The Human Condition is a very good book. Uh, she traces the whole discussion from Adam Smith down. So uh, these are problems which, uh, if one doesn't know Shvach, it's hard to discuss. Now, of course, what I, what I mean when I say it's hard to discuss, I don't mean that it's hard to discuss. I mean there are plenty of people, it's plenty of an and who do discuss that? But I mean, if a person wants to discuss what what the astere is, I mean, if a person just wants to talk a leitzim al abanim his own beichsvaras, but I mean, if you want to say what the Jewish attitude, I mean, if one wants to say what does the Taylor think about these problems, so a person has to know shvach. But I'm not discussing. I'm not pleading now for for shvach. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, those who are learning achevel, achevel also contains important principles. But uh, this is not my my concern at the present. But even apart from this, simply to recognize that in Tera, that one should know that there is a Hekif. There's a Hekif. I, I touch it at one point. The tangency must be at one point. But I know that this is part of a much more comprehensive and much broader. All right, so we'll stop here. The problems about Shvach, I'll leave you pondering. Uh, uh, next week, I'll take up this next problem. Uh, it takes a while to go through it, you see. The problem particularly, this is, all, this is a very important problem. The problem is what the Ramban quotes, the Gemara in Chigige, the Gemara in Zvachim, of Tere Kodmo Libriyat Now, there are a couple of questions I want you to think about. I'll just say what I want you to think about. First of all, what does it mean, Kodmo Libriyat What can be Kodmo Libriyat Seilah? What does it mean, Kodmo Libriyat Number one. All right, it doesn't know anything about, all right, Melo, okay, but time, and particularly should be especially concerned about this. So what? The relation of time before Briya Salem, what it means. Okay. Number one. Alright, some are studying Kimmel, studying physics. Alright, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, I won't get too much involved in the metaphysics of it. Uh, this is number one. But secondly, uh, even assuming that we understand what this means, in what respect, uh, in other words, one question is, well, how anything can be Kodum Libriya Salem? Well, what does it mean, Kodum Libriya Secondly, what does it mean that Taylor is Kodum Libriya Salem? What, is, what does this mean? Thirdly, why does the Ramban think that whether or not Tera is written in the first person or in the third person depends on whether it's Kodmol of Salem? What does one have to do with the other? The Ramban says, because Tera is Kodmol of Salem, therefore it's written all in the third person. So what's Apache Chavez, what does one have to do with the other? And if Tera was not Kodmol of Salem, couldn't it have been written in the third person? And conversely, if the Torah was called couldn't it have been written in the first verse? I mean, what does one have to do with the other? The Ramban somehow thought that these were very relevant, that these were interrelated. 
So apparently what you produce is yours, right? The shvach apparently becomes yours. But I, why, if I produce in someone else's sadeh, is it, is it not? Does it belong to him? So, because it's hafkoy. Like, yeah, his bailus, you see, of the sadeh contradicts him. And it's a stile. On the one hand, he owns the kalke. On the other hand, I produce the labor. So, it should belong to him, it should belong to me. So, can I get you tzia, I guess? That's actually the pshara. Can I get you tzia is mine, but also not mine. It's mine, it's mine. And the rest is his. We'll see later on. If you give me raw material, you give me matter, and I give it form, put it in Italian terms. So, so who does it belong? Who is the Kaylee? The Kaylee mine or yours? I have the form, you have the matter. So who is the Kaylee? What are you paying me for? What? What are you paying me for? No, why do I have a Kaylee in the Kaylee itself? Never mind the Kaylee. If I have a Kaylee in the Kaylee itself. Also, you later with the woman is Kaylee Bishwach Kaylee. The woman can be Makadish with a Kaylee, not with his wages. If you. Not buying the clay. You, you are an woman. I give you a piece of gold and I say, make a ring out of it. You take the ring and you give it to a girl and you tell her, Tagat Nukadash. Is she Makadish or not? Also, you later on. The metal is mine. What's yours? What do you own it? You own the tzura, the ring form you own, right? I, the metal is mine. You can't give her the abstract form. You can't divorce the form from the matter. So how can you give it to her? So you have a certain kinyan apparently in the thing itself. I, your wages, your wages, I'll pay you later. So you, I, you can't be, you're not being kind of with your wages. Be kind of with the keli. So how is it chal? So I'll see you later, maybe it's chal. So again, apparently, the, the creative act confers a certain measure of violence. It's related in the sense that I, I don't say that it must be so, but... If the problem is to be thought of at all, it's got these and yadim have got to be discussed. I mean, that's all. Uh, that's all I'm saying. All right, all right.